Welcome, welcome, welcome to the inaugural General Admissions Podcast. This is something of an evolving, mutated freak of a film podcast where I, Jared Walker, and uh, my filmic compatriot, Damien Peromka, hello, talk all things film. Now, we're going to fly in the face of popular convention and go a little easy on the structure. Opinions may differ and there may be strong language, so it's going to be less NPR and more WWE. <laughs> So let us open up the pod bay doors. Let us take the red pill and awaken from the humdrum of our daily grind. Damo, good day to you. <laughs> Hello, sir. sir. How are you? I am very good. good. I am very good. And um, I guess I might I might start this off with what have you been watching lately? I watched Apple TV's new thing, the morning show. Jennifer morning. Aniston, yeah. yes, Reese Witherspoon and Steve Carell. Uh, yeah, the most expensive television show ever made. Really? Yeah. 15, I believe it. 15 million an episode. I think they've dropped, I think it's around, I may be wrong, it's around 300 million. I think they've dropped on it. How does that compare though to Disney Plus's The Mandalorian? One thing I really like about it, it's directed by Dave Filoni and he is like the Buddha of all things Lucasfilm. He's the go-to guy. He's the go-to guy. But that's what I felt was very clear Mm. in this. There is a good sense of Star Wars in it. Yes, I think what I like the most about The Mandalorian, aside from the fact that I was bitterly disappointed it wasn't about a man who turns into a DeLorean. (laughs) uh, I've just said that joke so many times to people this week and everyone just stares at me. It's a terrible dad joke. Hey, I laughed. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And I I think what I liked the most about it was was so simple and so uh, kind of cut back and spare in Mm. terms of its storytelling. Well, I found episode two, there's not a lot of dialogue. No, but there's a lot it's in brilliant. it. It's like silent film almost. Yeah. Mm. I thought the music score was great. The music score is good. I like the fact that it's kind of like a Sergio Leone film. It's definitely heavy on the Western vibe. Are they being clever though doing, so Netflix drops the entire series of season three of, of The Crown. Yes. Disney Plus, you have to wait. I love binging, but a lot of the time it's difficult to find the time to actually you know plow through and binge watch an entire series. But there's also the anticipation of another because the, at the end of episode two of yeah. The Mandalorian, I was like, oh, I want another one. <laughs> yeah. I noticed they're only half hour episodes as well. Yeah, that's not bad either. It's like they've taken the lessons they've learnt from um, Rebels and from the animated shows and Clone Wars. Mm. And they're sort of, they're building out the universe in terms of a live action um, setting they're kind of building it out, but really slowly. Essentially, Lucasfilm have said, yes, it's canon now that Boba Fett survived the Sarlacc pit. I saw that. I did see it. I thought, hmm, is that that going to tie into The Mandalorian in some way? It's a convenient... Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a convenient sort of article to release just, uh, you know, on the second episode. And just note, I I, I mean, I know you can't see it on a podcast, but my shirt is today. Damien's currently wearing a uh, Boba Fett uh, (laughs) t-shirt. And look, he's such a... I think it's key really to the Boba Fett character because, you know, everyone, everyone people love Boba Fett and mm. you get a lot of talk amongst geeks. Oh, he's such a great character and he was this and he's that. And it's, it's like, really, really? Because if you watch the original trilogy, there's not much there. It's just it's his, the, it's his the armor. Christmas special, man. It's the Christmas <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's the Christmas special. It's Life Day. It's, uh, <laughs> and it, uh, I love they name checked Life Day yes, in the first episode of Mandalorian. I yeah. thought that was brilliant. Yeah. The uniform, the, the kind of the iconography of Boba Fett, uh, which they've obviously leveraged for the Mandalorian, because it's Mandalorian armor. Um, they've leveraged it for this TV series. So there's a sequence where he goes to a blacksmith mm. and they're all Mandalorians and they're all dressed in various garb, different colors and shapes and designs, but it's all very similar armor. So this idea. And we have some intriguing flashbacks during that. You have some intriguing flashbacks of his um, sort of traumatic uh, childhood. And I I like the fact that they're kind of slowly building this very strange mythology around Mandalorians, like they're uh, kind of like this samurai Bushido type culture that lives by this heavy duty code. I also read this cool thing because apparently I think is it in Empire where Darth Vader says to Boba Fett, no disintegration 
Holmes. <laughs> That's right. That, now we know. Now we know. There's 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 numerous disintegrations. Unfortunately, uh, several Jawas died. <laughs> poor Jawas. <laughs> poor Jawas <laughs> to uh, to bring that particular episode to us. Ludwig Göransson mm-hmm. is the composer for The Mandalorian. Yeah, really, really great music. Um, he did Black Panther, actually. That was one of the recent See, I like that too. There was everything about Black Panther yeah. I liked. He's got a really great, um, he's got a really great propellant style. I would, I, he kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, Basil Polduris, who mm-hmm. I think I've talked to you about mm. before, and uh, he's well known for. He, of course, he did RoboCop's main theme. He did Conan the Barbarian. He composed the music for Hunt for Red October. I love that film. Fantastic yeah. sort of, it's all Russian sort of choral, uh, um, sort of male choirs. It's really, yeah, Red October's soundtrack is phenomenal. My mum and my my sister went and saw some other rubbishy thing. Mum goes, you go watch this. And this is, what year is that? 1989? Do you know what? I think it was 1990 because Maybe. we're going to get into John McTiernan now. Yeah. John McTiernan. Oh, John McTiernan. What a storied career that man's had. Um, and a bit of a brush with prison recently as well. Really? Yeah. Oh. He he was involved. Well, we should I should just say up front, John McTiernan, phenomenal director. Yes. But he directed Predator, Die Hard, and Hunt for Red October in the space of, uh, what, five years? And, I mean, so three of you the greatest just, films of the 80s, yeah. really. Uh, he's a phenomenally talented. He's quite uh, he's quite academic, quite intellectual yep. as a filmmaker, and he sort of brings that to these genre picks. And I think that's what that what that's what gives them the edge. But, especially, but he also did Rollerball, the remake. He did. Come on, hey. <laughs> now that is key in what happened because he enlisted. Now uh, I'd have to get on Wikipedia to find this out, but he enlisted the help of Anthony Pelicano. He used to be a high-profile uh, LA private investigator and so uh, like a Hollywood fixer, basically a bagman, mm-hmm. and he had a lot of connections with Hollywood studios and or filmmakers, not studios necessarily, but filmmakers. And uh, essentially, what happened was um, he served 30 months in a federal prison for illegal possession of explosive firearms and homemade grenades. But they were for um, his movie, surely. Yeah, they were for his movie. <laughs> he he uh, began serving for an additional sentence for subsequent convictions for other crimes, including racketeering and wiretapping. What ended up happening was essentially on the set of uh, Rollerball, there's a, there was a number of people, I think, that were wiretapped. Um, one of them I've actually interviewed. His name was Chuck Roven. He's a producer, um, did Dark Knight trilogy. I think, oh. I think he's a producer on a lot of Chris Nolan's films yep. because of that relationship he established with Batman Begins. Um, that's what I interviewed him for. He produced 12 Monkeys. Ah. He produced, yeah, like Seriously, he, he has made a lot of films. But one of them was Rollerball, the ill-fated remake. And he was wiretapped at John McTiernan's behest by Anthony Pelicano but because to... John McTiernan f- thought the producers were against him. He oh. thought the studio was against him and he wanted to find out what dirt they had and why they had issues with him on the film. And that is a very illegal thing to do. And so I, I believe there was other stuff attached to that. But essentially, John McTiernan then went to prison. Ultimately, he was incarcerated uh, for about a year. Didn't do well for his career. I don't think going to jail is a great sort of career move. Because Rollerball was a mess. It was a mess. Yeah, it was. It? Chris Klein. Rebecca from... Romans-Demas. LL Cool J. That's... <laughs> but it was just, I remember not being able to follow the Rollerball action because mm. being a video editor, crossing the line. We're going this way. We're going that way. I had no idea which way we're going. It was just mm. a mess. And that was at least of its problems. It was a massive mess. I don't know. I prefer the original film. It's kind of set in this corporate fascistic society where um, it's like the gladiatorial athletes are given such prominence. They're like uh, hero worshipped by the public and they're idolized. And I thought it was an interesting idea. Sort of, It sort of heightens and it sort of... Uh, takes a lot of examples from like sports, I guess, and athletes now and puts it on, you know, gives it a bit of a pump up, puts it on steroids. James Kahn, right? James Kahn. Yeah. And 
there was something about I like the production design. I think this is Norman Jewison directed it. But there's but something a seventies version versus a two thousands version yeah. is going to be better. I just the seventies version I think was a lot more visceral yeah. because of the way. I mean, they had to do it for real, so it is essentially like. But what a surprise! Uh, they remade a, a popular film because yeah. you know that's a, a new idea. <laughs> yeah, let's just remake it for absolutely no reason. I that saw you, you were talking about so. what I asked recently as well. I mm. caught caught the remake of the Lion King. Mm. And John Favreau, Favreau, uh, Favreau, yes, yeah, he's very involved in <laughs> the Mandalorian. He is, but I didn't see the point of the remake of the Lion King. No, I uh, love the Lion King. It's yes, my favourite animated Disney film. <laughs> I'm not ashamed. I know all the songs, <laughs> but it, it it is actually like I do think it is the. In terms of the music and the 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 sort of um, the blend of the animated film itself and the story and the and the musical soundtrack, it is probably the best example of mm. that Disney golden era. Which was, or was it? I mean, it was really the ninety three, ninety three, and that it led to a run of um, of really successful Disney animated musicals mm. and the, during the nineties. And I think. That is what Disney kind of want you to. Though they're pulling the, st- they're the, the nostalgia the new one machine, lacks basically. emotion somehow yeah, because it's too it's too real and the faces can't be yeah. exaggerated or given human expression and so they, they it's kind of dull and lifeless except for the lips moving, which is strange because you think I think about Babe, yep, and that managed that to, yeah that worked yeah. It, tried, it managed to get emotion. It's just. With Babe, there isn't an animated equivalent that we can compare it to. Mm. That's the big problem. And because the people found the original, I think, so moving and so um, so engaging. And let's face it, it's a kid's film as well. So a lot of people have grown the, up but the with new, it. But the, the new one is quite frightening. Yeah. It's a bit freaky when it's real. Yeah. Like some of the, I mean, the animation is so. It's superb. So superb. And I, I prefer Jungle Book because I think. Me that too. Kind Me of, too. I don't know whether it's because it was, I mean, it may, there are other versions. Yeah. But it's not as fresh in my mind or, or as a favorite like The Lion King. Mm, yeah, but th- the, the, the thing I'll give the, the, the <clears throat> remake is uh, James Earl Jones is back. Yeah. What's not to like there? He's still kicking. I mean, having his voice. Uh, as uh, uh, Mufasa, I think really that helped. It definitely helped. Um, the Beyonce song that was clumsily inserted that just felt it just stuck out. It's like the same movie, but it's half an hour longer. Yeah, it's like it, it does, doesn't have the brevity or the uh, it's a sense of fun that the original had. I mean, it's a really great example of um, the Jurassic Park principle. Just because you could doesn't mean you should. Yeah, you can do animation that is so photo real, it's quite breathtaking. But beyond that, there's no there's no ability to enhance the expressions of the animals. But that's what was lacking for me was emotion. the emotion and heart. Everything else was technically brilliant. Yeah. It looked amazing, but it just fell flat. It's a shame because uh, you know Favreau is a talented filmmaker, um, but I think Disney are pulling him into the Star Wars franchise because of what he did for Marvel. I mean, he basically, um, not well, not single-handedly in, in any way, but Marvel's a sort of a brains trust, but Kevin Feige's the king of that camp. Yep. But I think Favreau definitely was instrumental in setting up the, the look and feel of uh, Marvel films because in terms of cinematography and style, they all have a similar look and feel. I love Black Panther, mm. but... The Avengers didn't care for it. Endgame, not not at all. I thought mm. that was just long, unnecessarily. Hitchcock said it, and Barry Sonnenfeld also said he liked to do movies that are about eighty minutes long. And Hitchcock, you know, it's depends. It's all dependent on the size of someone's bladder. Mm. Three hours in a cinema, longer does not equal better. Yeah, I have to admit that was a, that was a three wee film for me in game. <laughs> I, I still really enjoyed it and look I did, had a bit of a blub at the end when uh, when well when the stuff happens I'm not going to spoil no spoilers but uh, it, it it definitely is one of those films that is solely for the fans it's for the hardcore fans really because it's all about payoff if you shorten that movie by half an hour mm. you get an extra session in at cinema basically yeah so you make more money mm. yeah but they 
made like two point seven billion or something. I, I, so. I'm one of these people that just, I'm on the outer on this film. I think. Yeah. I do not think every single Marvel film was amazing. Iron Man is a perfect little blockbuster in terms of it what it was doing. Trilogy, and, isn't it? Uh, it, it is a trilogy. Uh, second, and a pop ups in there. Second one is notoriously uh, well in terms of it. The Marvel uh, the universe, I think, this, the second one is seen as one of the weakest okay. entries. Third one, Shane Black directed. Um, we like Shane we, Black. We like Shane Black. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Of course, he worked with Robert Downey Jr. back then. Back then, Robert Downey Jr. was barely hireable ah, uh, that's because right. of his past. Yes. And so um, I think that he formed a bit of a relationship with Shane Black back then. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is fun. It is I fun. It's a remember very that. funny film. Val Kilmer is great in it. Yeah, he's good. As uh, Gay Perry. I believe he, was, <laughs> yeah, he was fantastic. Val, I love Val Kilmer. And the Russell Crowe. Nice guys with uh, Ryan Gosling, yeah. That's, yeah. that's that's also a lot of fun. Very funny. He's really good at banter. In fact, he Shane Black, uh, screenwriter and director, but as a screenwriter, Lethal Weapon. Oh um, yeah, yeah. He wrote uh, Last Action Hero, which was also significantly re and directed by John McTiernan and directed by John McTiernan. Yes. See, we've, we come full full circle. circle. <laughs> Everything's connected. Everything's got a back history, but. Shane Black is a talented screenwriter, and uh, Long Kiss Goodnight is a good example of, which was directed by Rennie Harlan. Did he write that? He wrote Long Kiss Goodnight. Yeah, I enjoy that which film. I think is one of the best action films I've seen. It, I've seen it, it die? many times. It did. I don't think it was particularly successful at the box office. I, no, it made money. It wasn't a mega flop because there was two films that Rennie Harlan directed with his wife in the lead. The one was Gina Davis. Uh, You're talking Cutthroat Island, aren't you? Cutthroat Island. Oh, my God. (laughs) But I've got to say, I liked it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, look, um, uh, uh, Cutthroat Island is actually, as a spectacle, it's it's fascinating because they shot in Malta. It's all sets. There's no CG finishing set extensions. I had fun with it. (laughs) It's all for real and practical, and they had pirate ships blowing up. and It's fun. Uh, Famously... Uh, I believe Michael Douglas was going to star in it, dropped out the last minute. Matthew Modine replaced him. Uh, Then Gina Davis met the infamous Oliver Reed, who Uh was playing the bad guy that ended up being played by Frank Langella. And what happened was Oliver Reed, uh, on one of the early nights of production, I believe they're actually in pre-production, in Malta, in a bar, the irony is that Oliver Reed died in Malta in a bar. He infamously came out on Parkinson yep. with a jug of vodka and orange, which <laughs> he polished off and then staggered around the stage singing um, I'm a Wild One and the band played and I'm a wild one. And it, it was it was just, in, it's, it's on YouTube, I believe, so it's worth checking out. Kind of feel weird laughing at it. But, I mean, it's clearly... The man was a suffering alcoholic, yeah. but he did not relent. He didn't pull back. He didn't stop. He just plowed through and just kept drinking. He kept working. Um, but so he worked well because even he, he well. died and he's still in Gladiator. He was like, he was a working actor right up until his yeah. death. And that was in 2000 or 99 when he was in Cutthroat Island pre-production. This is what I read. I don't know how true this is, but I love it as a bit of gossip. Oliver Reed had a tattoo of an eagle's wings on his shoulder and its claws were in his pelvic region, shall we say. (laughs) And uh, he infamously said in the restaurant to Gina Davis, this is my eagle. Do you want to see my eagle? Showed her his shoulders with the eagle's wings. He said, do you want to see where it lands? And he then dropped his pants. Oh, dear. And uh, yeah, apparently offended her, offended a few other people, and I believe he was booted off the film. I, I, I don't know. That's an anecdotal story. I, I don't know if that's even true. Oh, if you read it on the internet, it's bound it, to be true. It's bound to be true. That's it's what bound it, to be true. What the but for. I want to believe it's true because there's something <laughs> so <laughs> raucously kind of just uh, rock star about it. Yeah, it's and good. I think that's probably the appeal of Oliver Reed. He was that sort of person. But getting back to Shane Black yes. and Long Kiss Goodnight, Shane Black wrote the script. It had Samuel Jackson and Gina Davis and Brian Cox. It had a fantastic cast. Craig Burko. Craig Burko. Now, he was also in The Cinderella Man with 
Russell Crowe. Ah. And he played uh, uh, Russell Crowe's kind of nemesis in that film, um, Max Baer, the boxer. Um, I know Max Baer's family weren't too happy with the way he was depicted in that film. But anyway, Craig Burko was around for a little bit. He was in a film, 13th Floor, He played, which was sort of a, one of those, during that period about sort of virtual reality when everyone was fascinated with that and the idea of creating like a virtual world, post-Matrix, of course, yep. early 2000s. And 13th Floor was interesting. That um, I think pretty much was the what his career amounted to. I don't know what he does now. I think he might just be back in theatre. It usually happens with a lot of those theatre actors. They go into film. If they, they don't hit it big, they tend to go back to the theatre. So he may be on Broadway or doing something like that now. But uh, Long Kiss Goodnight was, I think, one of the best action films that I've seen. And it has this really clever plot about the CIA wanting to devise a fake terrorist attack in order to justify their budget. Uh And I saw it again recently and thought, this is creepily kind of relevant even now. And um, Gina Davis is so good. as a That scene where she's strapped to that that wheel. That's right. The water wheel. Oh, my God. And they're torturing her. It's really intense. It's and, very uh, intense. I'm just, oh my God, take a breath. How, oh my God. She was phenomenal. Yeah. I, I love Gina Davis. And that goes right back to one of the most disturbing films I ever saw as a young man, The Fly, thanks to David Cronenberg. As a, in terms of a, a female action star, is she is so formidable. She kicks ass. It's amazing. Yeah, she's as formidable as Ripley, yeah. as Sigourney Weaver was as Ripley. And uh, it's, a, it's an oft forgotten film. People don't sort of hark back to it when they are talking about female action stars. And it's a, it's a really stridently aggressive and strong lead that doesn't ever get sort of talked about in any kind of film conversations. Um, so yeah, Long Kiss Goodnight is, is a real gem. That's, I mean, that for me, that's up there with Die Hard in terms of the rewatchability of it and um, yes. just how well executed. Well, it's an entertaining it's, spectacle. Yeah. Rennie Harlan's a great director. I mean, yeah, he made Die Hard too, and that, you know, it's always going to be the poor cousin to the original, but he's a good action director. He's a really good sort of nuts and bolts action director. He knows how to shoot action well and shoot it effectively. And if he's got a good script, uh, he's dynamite. And I think Long Kiss Goodnight is as good as Rennie Harlan has ever been. Do you like Die Hard with a Vengeance? This is the thing. Die Hard is a tense and, and very uh, pressure cooker of a plot because it's all in one building. Die Hard is, I think, one of my all-time favorite films. But when it comes to Die Hard 2, what do you do? Oh, I know. The first one was so tense, set in a building. What do we do? I know, set it in an airport mm. where you've got three or four kilometers between him and the bad guys. It's like, hang on, there was no tension at all. And so in order to kind of ratchet up any though any sort of sense of suspense they would sort of replaced that with violence yes. so it's a really violent film it's very peck and par in its um, depiction of violence the icicle through someone's eye and but it just didn't form a sort of uh, a hole and come together and sort of gel whereas with die hard with a vengeance you can see that you know the director of the original returns john mctiernan's back and he makes a ticking clock film yeah, it's a bit tenuous having the brother of the bad guy from the first one, but Fine. it still works because it keeps the tension. And that's what I mean about John McTiernan is he's a very smart filmmaker. And in terms of plot devices, you, you could tell as soon as you start um, watching Die Hard with the Vengeance, I feel tense, I feel suspenseful. Um, and it adds to the action. I don't think it's as successful as uh, Die Hard was, but in terms of it's probably a bit long. It's a bit baggy towards the yeah. end, and I. But just... it's still good fun. Well, who's your favourite filmmaker then? I have a group of go-to's. Yep. But um, my personal favourite is is Michael Mann. Manhunter. Manhunter. That's tremendous. Thief with James Kahn. Yep. The aforementioned James Kahn. He of Rollerball. I should actually mention that there is a phenomenal podcast called One Heat Minute. And uh, it's done by a guy named Blake Howard. And he did a series of uh, podcasts, each one focusing on one minute of heat. And then, yeah, so there's 166 I was say, it's a long of them. Film. There's 166 <laughs> of them. And for a film geek, there's something 
are deeply impressive about the minutiae of it. And it does, it reminded me a little bit of what Roger Ebert did with Citizen Kane, where he went through it shot by shot yep. as well. It's that kind of methodical drilling down that I found really intoxicating about it. But it, it got such a rep, it got back to Michael Mann that this kid in Australia was doing a podcast based on one minute of heat for each podcast. And so for the final episode, uh, which basically focuses on the final minute, the moment uh, that this music plays, uh, Moby's uh, God moving over the face of the waters, and uh, that sequence at the airport, and De Niro has been shot, and he's sitting there, lying there, and Pacino's holding his hand, and it's this moment of bonding between the two men, the two men that that man has kind of created these equivalences with where one is predator one is prey yet they basically are the same person and they lead the same life and they're just not good at anything except what they're doing what they're going after and they're in their professional life and that's it and they sort of that's what i love about heat is that that really pacino or de niro could have been flipped over and played yes i thought the same thing yeah, absolutely. And I love that about it. But Michael Mann guessed it on the podcast. So Aww. One Heat Minute, it's definitely worth checking out. Um, and so, yeah, talks for like like a decent amount of time, half an hour, 40 minutes about that final sequence, how they shot it, where they shot it, why he picked the airport. Um, and I think the main reason was he said that uh, it was somewhere where a person shouldn't be where humans just didn't seem to fit the environment. Yes. Surrounded by cargo containers on the edge of this airstrip, and it just felt foreign and strange, and that's why he picked it. But uh, he had a huge impact on me. Um, I think that that movie has some of the best shootout action scenes you can... Yeah. It's such such a visceral... That police shootout is phenomenal. Oh, it's amazing. And I think that... Uh, I do remember reading about... The gunshots that they recorded, the sound recorders. I was going to say, the sound design is amazing. Yeah, they recorded all these gunshots, different firing ranges, and they got it all sounding fantastic, and they edited it in, and they were like, you know what? The actual blanks in the city echoing off the buildings sound more impactful, and that's what they use. So so the audio that's in that police shootout is wild. It's what was recorded on the day, and I think that's what gives it the energy it's got. Well, it's real, isn't it? It's real, yeah. 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 And it's it's such a fantastic sequence. Um, That robbery is still... It's so often... riffed on like the amount of films that I've seen that riff on it the opening of the dark night flat out sort of references it in the style of the the way that robbery is shot where the joker goes into the bank um, and it does have a bit of a heat feel it seems that whenever there's if you want to sort of uh, reference check heat have your bank robbers jump up on the counter and walk along with their masks on and their guns and it's like you just think yep just like heat Yes. But I think the storytelling in Heat is what I love the most and the kind of the, the duality of the leads, of lead characters, and their, the way that it treated every single person in that story with respect in terms of the way they were depicted. It showed them as sort of 3D people. I love Michael Mann's sort of sense of style, but the way that he melds it with realism and this kind of well-researched and well-grounded characters. Another film that Michael Mann made was Thief, Tangerine Dream, doing the soundtrack. Uh, Thief, of course, James Kahn, ex-con, wanting to go straight. There's always that uh, that idea in a film of one last job. It pulls one last job. He's a he's actually a safe cracker, and again, heavily researched. Willie Nelson? Yeah, Willie Nelson was in it. That's right, as an ex-con. Sort Jim of Belushi as well. Jim Belushi. I've not seen it. I've got it at home, but I've never actually. Thief, Thief is a great put it film. In on. It, yeah, yeah, it's great. It's even got a really fantastic denouement. Like it's, it's as a as a piece, it is a great James Caan film. Well, I've told you recently watched a whole stack of uh, '70s Italian cop films. Yes, slapping slapping, <laughs> slapping people around. People around. There's yeah, police br- brutality is uh, not even really thought about. It's such fun. I like going back to old films because I you see clearly where the 
the the sort of lineage begins or the references begins with a lot of films that are made in the 80s and 90s and the filmmakers who made those films watched this stuff in the 70s and the 60s and the 50s and they're all influenced by it and you heavily. can go back even to the 40s and 30s because yes. that's i spent my formative years growing up watching david stratton and margaret mm. pomerantz present all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff on television mm. That's the stuff that we miss. It's happenstance because happenstance has such a key role in why I saw a lot of the films I saw when I was young. And Des Mangan yeah. with his cult movies as well. Yes, That's where my yes. love of the obscure came. Ivan Hutchinson with his yeah. midday movies. <laughs> Who has to used to have to really speed his intro. Yes. Because they give him, you've got one minute, you've got go. One minute. Rapid fire. <laughs> yeah. And of course, you know, the late Bill Collins. Um, yeah. That, that man Bill was... Collins is the one that taught me to rewatch Hitchcock. Yeah. The, the rewatch them because you will get something different or new mm. each time. And he's right. He has a, um, Bill Collins had a, a, an infectious obsessiveness about the films. And everyone would sort of, sort of, I think it's a bit dismissive the way that he was sort of treated as a bit of a lovey and, you know, he would. But like, his love like, of it clearly it, shone yeah. through. Like yeah. I, that's when Marlon Brando died. Mm. He did an introduction to, I think it was on, on the waterfront or something. He played that on Fox mm-hmm. Classics. And his intro went for nine minutes. Wow. Because he's unscripted. Yes. Nine minute intro. It's, it's, it's kind of testament. That partic- in particular is testament to his... Knowledge for his one. His knowledge and his obsession with um, the golden years of Hollywood, the golden age of cinema. My fear is now in the age of streaming, we're not going to have the ability because you look at in streaming, it'll say classics. That's the that'll be a category on your whatever the uh, corporate behemoth kind of uh, <laughs> yes. streaming platform is, and um, and it's just this one category. And you go along, and it's probably ten or fifteen films. I was going to say this is usually not very big. Yeah, John Wayne in the Searches, or uh, you know Vertigo, or whatever. It will just have these sort of random classics that are well known, and that's that's it. That's as far back as you're going to get. But with th- that's a lot of these the, that was the other thing I was mentioning. I think we spoke at some point about the, the movies you'd like to see that you can't find. It's there's quite a lot, and I I um uh, I like films like okay, well, a good one is Shock Corridor, uh, Sam Fuller's film uh, about a journalist going undercover in a mental asylum, right. and who pretends to be uh, a, an, a patient in the asylum. And in order to get the get the goods on the story, but and that sounds like something that wouldn't end well. No, <laughs> it's a bit of a you know Sam Fuller. Oh, what a great filmmaker! Um, obviously, World War Two veteran, and uh, no, well, not obviously, but he was a World War Two veteran. Um, I believe he fought in Italy, and he made a great World War II film called The Big Red One with Mark Hamill. Um, I believe Mark Hamill made that in between Star Wars and Jedi. Um, so Star Wars and Empire, he made Big Red One. And I highly recommend people check that out. Uh, stars Lee Marvin, the great Lee Marvin, also a World War II veteran. I think he found a kindred spirit in Sam Fuller. Uh, does have a great scene with uh, a guy getting blown up by a landmine saying that uh, one of his balls got blown off and, <laughs> and Lee Marvin crouches over him. And says, "Don't worry, son. That's why God gave you two. <laughs> um, it does have some hilarious moments in it. It is. It's a great film. It's very. It's made on a budget, but it's very effective. I mean, it's uh, It's very handsomely produced. But Sam Fuller was. He was very much his own. His own kind of person when it came to the sort of stories he wanted to tell. And um, well, you know, I was just it reminded me. You spoke of uh, Lee Marvin. He was mm-hmm. in that um, Hell in the Pacific." Yes, Tashira Mifune. Tashira Mifune. What awesome. a great yeah. film. There's a sort of demand for everything to be uh, as optimal as possible in its release and in its sort of uh, issue well, like I, on I, DVD. That, you're right, but I remember watching um, last, what was Peter Weir's film? The Cars That Ate Paris. Mm. So David Stratton showed that on SBS and his introduction. And I still remember it because he said I had I had the opportunity to I had two prints that I mm. could have shown you tonight. One pristine, beautiful, but not the full movie. It's slightly cut. 
and I'm not going to do that to you. So this, the print I'm showing you, and I apologize, is full of scratches and film dirt and all that sort of thing, but it's the complete film. Mm. And that's what he showed. I don't care. And in fact, that has a charm to it. Yeah, it's that vinyl versus um, digital. Well, you, well, I talked to you about my new telly that I bought, and yes. I'm still struggling with the <laughs> resolution on that thing. And how yeah, how analog translates. There's a certain, there's a kind of a warmth to analog. And as it turns out, um, uh, a sort of uncompressed accuracy. If you, you know, yes. I was listening to Neil Young recently talking about that. Neil Young is, uh, in terms of music, but I think this also applies with... Um, cinema as well um neil young's on a big push for higher uh higher res versions of of, of musical recordings to be made available so yeah. not as we're so used to the crappy compression in mp3s and we just accept that that's that's just what we get when really it's just as easy for them to make available uh uncompressed uh, yes. formats yes. that sound bigger and fuller and, and you can hear everything. If you're listening to an acoustic recording, you'll hear the hands of the musicians sliding up and down the fretboard. And it's all those kinds of rich details, I think, that add to uh, music. But it's the same with, with film. It doesn't always... I mean, yeah, you can have your HD uh, or 4K or your Dolby Atmos or you know, you can have your great sound. But for these older films... Sometimes just reissuing them or making them available in uh, a sort of archived digital format, even in a rough kind of presentation, it doesn't matter. I, as long I would as be happy because I, yeah. some films that are out, I've seen, I mm. want to see again, but where are they? It's, it's a real shame. I mean, a lot of films have disappeared from public consciousness, so no yep. one's aware of them. And I know that there's numerous examples of negatives that are in storage in a lot of the studio's uh, storage facilities. A lot of those are in the desert because they have the requisite um, sort of uh, uh, air, humidity and uh, temperature in which they can sort of survive and maintain these rolls of film. Yes. Um, and so they don't turn to vinegar and mush over the years. But these, these negatives are, are degrading. And if money's not put into restoring them, then the film negatives will be lost and the film is lost. And all, then maybe all we'll have is VHS versions. Of but see, I wonder, because you just said restore, and I'm not necessarily looking for a restoration on, on it. Just, just a simple give me retrieval. A, yes, that's probably a, a better word that's here, I think. Such a, for for me, anyway. It's such a gargantuan task, I think, for the studios. I'm not, I'm not talking everything, because there's a lot catalog. of crap. <laughs> It's a strange thing, really, where film uh, is the storage and it is the medium. And if you store that roll of film, that canister, in such a way that uh, humidity doesn't get to it, it'll last a long, long time. But it does ultimately need to be transferred to some other kind of form. Well, it's all well and good to have it sitting there, but yeah. if no one can view it. There are streaming platforms that have like art house films, but again... They're well-known art house films like yeah. Mubi, for example, M-U-B-I. That's a that's a pretty cool streaming platform if you like art house films. Criterion have a pretty cool streaming platform. Oh, I was I was in America recently and they had fifty percent off at a Barnes and Noble of Criterion, hmm. but I couldn't bring any of them home because they're all the wrong region, aren't they? You'll have to get a Region A Blu-ray player. Well, my my Blu-ray player, and I I, sh I shouldn't probably admit this, but uh, I bought it for fifteen dollars at Coles. <laughs> if it does the job, it does the job. I've yep. got I've got so many uh, UK DVDs, and my for some strange reason my DVD player won't play them. Vigilance is required when it comes to this. I mean, I know Martin Scorsese is big on this topic, as but he's talking about film restoration. But I guess what we're talking about is preservation. And they do. I think do, that's that's probably a better word. Yeah. 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 And, and look, you know, the, what is it? The National Library, um, uh, the Congress National Library yes. in the yes. US. They always accept like ten or twelve entrants into their library every year, and and uh, and and but they're well-known films. Again, it's not. You know, it's it's more the older movies from the forties and fifties. Silent film. They reckon. They reckon a third of, of only a third survive of the silent films that were made, nineteen um, hundreds to yeah. It's a shame because a lot of them. There's tremendous stuff out there. But Scorsese was big on getting um, Peeping Tom restored That's and right. re-released. Re such a demented film. I still yeah. Officially, it's freaky. Yeah, it's and Michael Powell. Yeah, I can't believe he made that. At yeah, the time he made it, it was just. 
Yeah, that's a bit of a Clockwork Orange type film where the public had such a a sort of re- repellent reaction to the film, like they were shocked and upset. The press leaked on it. His career was destroyed. I yeah. know he came to Australia because he made uh, There a Weird Mob. Yes, um, yes. But and did, sort of directed here, but it killed his career. Stone. Well, it's dead. a shame because you look at that film now, mm. and you it's it is it's creepy. It's creepy. It's that's very creepy. effective. It's so far ahead of its time. It's yeah. like a Brian. Nineties. That's went, nineteen. What sixty? I think it's sixty or sixty-one. Yeah, but it's 60. like Brian De Palma went back in time and made a film back. It's just it's insane. You know, yeah. like a, a voyeuristic serial killer. But the restored version, mm. just incredible. It is an amazing film. Yeah, Michael Powell, Powell Pressburger. Yeah, Red Shoes, Black Narcissus. Um, Black Narcissus. I like this. Uh, Deborah Carr. Yeah, yeah, great film. Just terrific movies. Stylistically, they're amazing. They look beautiful. Um, they're so unique. They were really a great pair. A Matter of Life and Death is also with David Niven. That's one of my mm. faves as well. That's a great film. But we're talking about favorite directors. Yes, Scorsese. But my favorite Scorsese films, mm. Kundun. Yes, I think is brilliant. I do also. The the way it was shot, everything mm-hmm. about it. I love Philip. Takes Glass's, you on a really good journey. Philip Glass's soundtrack is fantastic as well. Uh, um, that's a great film. Yeah, and a lot of people slag it off. They sort of think that's a weak. What's well, no seven years in Tibet? No, <laughs> <laughs> it's not as accessible as a lot of those other. Kundan's a beautifully made film, and it's quite a beautiful story, written by Melissa Matheson, who yeah. wrote E.T. Harrison Ford's ex-wife. And this is just my bent when it comes to Scorsese, but I prefer the ones that he directs that are um, very personal to him. And I know with Kundan, he connected to it in a very personal way. I think he tried way. to get it up for a long time a long too. Time. The other one is Last Temptation of Christ. I've and not seen it. Yeah. That is for me um, probably one of my favorite Scorsese films. And people always sort of look at me with a, like, what? You know, mm. when I say that. But I loved it. And what? really, the Peter Gabriel's music for it is phenomenal. I didn't know it was Peter Gabriel. Yeah, it's a fantastic soundtrack. Um, a lot of world music. So you have yep. a lot of world musicians playing strange you know, instruments and the beats. It's fantastic. Um, the, the actual soundtrack's called Passion. It's a Peter Gabriel's album. It looks like a Peter Gabriel album. It's entitled Passion, but it's actually the score from the film. Uh, Willem Dafoe played Christ. Oh, I want to see it. I just, I don't know what, I'm not a... Religiousy type of person. Yeah, it's it's more. I think you might like it more than you think because what was I'm controversial sure, about it so. is that it explores Christ's humanity. Okay, and that Christ yearned for, um, whilst understanding he had a greater purpose, yearned to be human. Yeah, and wanted to have uh, a wife and children, and that that was his. As the title suggests, last temptation in the in the story, it's kind of that's. Um, is Satan is depicted as, uh, well, in various guises, but in the film comes to Jesus and sort of tries to tempt him with humanity, with normality, with, you know what? You don't have to lead this life. Mm-hmm. You can just be a normal person. That's That definitely is worth checking out because it's shot in Morocco. Uh, Barbara Hershey plays Mary Magdalene. Uh, Harvey Keitel is in it. Everyone's doing their... Um, uh, their own accents. It's not sort of trying to be a biblical epic. It's more like um, he's giving it a sort of real world treatment. I think he was inspired by Pasolini, uh, Pier Paolo Pasolini. Yeah. Of course, he made Salo, 120 Days of Sodom. That's he, a tough ride. <laughs> that's a tough ride yeah. and uh, not one I'd suggest for everybody. But uh, he made a film called The Gospel According to St. Matthew. Mm-hmm. And it was a black and white uh, version of uh, the Christ story and Christ is sort of almost like an analog for a sort of communist revolutionary which is very much in keeping with Pasolini's politics yes um, and uh, if anyone knows anything about Pasolini he's had a quite a fascinating life um, he pissed off a lot of people basically yep. because Italy sort of has an undercurrent of sort of right-wing conservatism you might even say fascism uh, and and still does today I think and back then um, annoyed a lot of people with his uh, sort of free thinking and politics and um, I guess back then a sort of gay communist filmmaker was not seen as somebody who should be listened to or should have a voice so well someone uh, murdered him yeah Salo was banned for in Australia for so long I mm. sorted out and brought it in from the UK mm. who strangely didn't who they released it untouched. 
Mm, interesting. L- I later, not at the time, but remember much it, later. It was showing a lot at um, Encore and Academy Twin in Paddington, but Encore Cinema in Sydney in Devonshire Street Central, I used to haunt. Yeah. And uh, that's where I first saw Akira and Ghost in the Shell and sort of got exposed to anime. But it was those sort of cinemas that played films like that. But Pasolini's treatment of the Christ story was is a... Not an, uh, it's a sort of atheistic view of the life of Christ, and he's sort of trying to explore different ideas in the telling of it. Now, obviously, Martin Scorsese is a hardcore Catholic, he has very deep seated religious um, beliefs, and he tried to get up, uh, Last Temptation up and running. I think straight after Raging Bull, he tried to get it up and running. But um, he couldn't. And I think that that is a project of his that was so heartfelt for so long. The only other project I know of that he um, nurtured for that long is Gangs of New York. And that took him for That's a Daniel Day-Lewis again, isn't it? Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah. See, that's not, that, I didn't mind that. I enjoyed it. It's actually worth going back to and checking out because it's bizarre. I added to the list because I, re- I just rewatched, the, which is I've written here, The Departed. Yes. Which I... I like. Yeah, it's a good fun. It's a good fun film. I enjoyed the original uh, Hong Infernal Kong. Infernal Affairs. Infernal Affairs. Yeah. What, a, what a great film that yeah. was. It, Andy Lau. Yeah. Uh, Alan Mack has got mm. here. Um, I'm not sure if they co-directed or if there were some production issues that meant that one finished it off and the other didn't. I don't know. I'm not sure how that worked. But Infernal Affairs actually, it's a little more melodramatic. Um, it's probably a bit slicker than than the way that Departed is, is filmed. Again, Scorsese kind of imbues things but with I, a bit of realism. I liked the cast, like mm. Martin Sheen. Oh, he's great. Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. Mark Wahlberg. Alec Baldwin. Yeah. Alec Baldwin is hilarious and in that film. the best part of it all, mm. Jack. Jack. He's great. Oh, I miss Jack Nicholson. I mean, I, he's... I think he's ostensibly retired. I don't think he will come back. To How film. good he, but he was, was he in that? Because Martin Scorsese directing Jack Nicholson. That was a phenomenal. I mean, it is actually underrated. I think it gets sidelined because people believe that Scorsese should have won the, the Oscar for Best Director mm. long before Departed. And so they kind of relegated so, Departed to like some sort of bottom shelf saying, oh, that's a kind of poor cousin to Goodfellas. Granted, he should have won for Goodfellas. But, Goodfellas um, is good, but I watched Casino recently yeah, as well. That's a great film. Ah, uh, no. Oh, you didn't like it? I choose to disagree. So. Oh, I, I had a few walkouts. I remember when I saw it. And uh, If I could have walked out of my lounge room, <laughs> if I wasn't tied to the couch. As long as you weren't watching it on a plane or something. No, I, I didn't. I didn't enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it looked oh, yeah. great. Oh, yeah. I know what you mean. But Sharon Stone... She was just mm. yelling and screaming the whole time. So, Shut up. Yeah, I, I, I actually really enjoyed her performance in it. Um, I, when I first saw it, my gut reaction was, oh, I thought that was be more like Goodfellas and it kind of wasn't. Goodfellas had it, it kind of cohered. And Perhaps that's what I'm, it's unfair to, to, to compare it to. It's hard not to though, because it's set True. in the exact same period. They look the same. Pesci is almost playing the same, same character. Guy. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, that's the other thing is. I, I will say he was good in it. Mm. I just it went on and on and on. Yeah, it's um wasn't wasn't a favourite. <laughs> so is it, the, it departed? And the third one on my list was, and it's my voyage to Italy. Mm. Have you seen that? It's it's quite a commitment. It, no, I haven't. I have not because seen that. it's it's a documentary. It's him talking about Italian films. Right. And it's, it's, it actually is called Journey to Italy. My Voyage to Italy. Oh, Sorry. right. Because there's Journey. Yeah, it's funny. Voyage to Italy and Journey to Italy uh, is, I think Journey to Italy is a Rossellini film. My Voyage to Italy. I've got Italy it on DVD. A, I'll lend it to you. Um, okay. If you've got to spare Italian, four hours. <laughs> Italian cinema history. Um, As told by Scorsese. So. Um, a personal journey with Martin Scorsese through American movies. I've seen that too. That's, that's the BFI, I think, made that. The British yeah. Film Institute is phenomenal. Yeah, I've got that, that is, at home somewhere too, I think. That's like a masterclass in US film history. He goes back to silent films. He talks about B-movie directors and westerns. And he's, I've got a lot of respect for Martin Scorsese in terms of his... His academia and his background. I mean, he was, he was he taught Oliver Stone f- at film school. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the guy is pretty amazing. You know, the recent comments he made about Marvel films, which are utterly correct, that they are like 
theme parks. He wasn't yes. saying it in a derogatory way. He was just saying it's a different experience to the personal I don't think there's anything wrong with that experience. comment because that's no, what they are. That's what they are. But the and thing with Martin Scorsese, if you look back through his catalogue, yeah. they're so different. Mm. There's a lot of similarities, a lot of the casino and Goodfellas, and, yeah. but there's other things that are so... He's not afraid to try, and I like that. Mm. He's, he will is, you give the new one a go, the, the Netflix? I will absolutely give it a go. The Irishman, um, I believe, is in cinemas at the moment, and I actually want to get to see it in the cinema on a big screen before I see it on Netflix because I've got a feeling it'll be a much more impactful experience. And but it's long, it's Jared. long. It's three hours, and I look. But judging by Endgame, I'm sure I'll have a, a four wheeze or something during. They just need an intermission. Bring back the intermission. That's what I like. Lawrence of Arabia, Blu-ray. Yeah, yeah. They leave the intermission in. I love. You know what I love is um, overtures. Yeah, I love that. You know the the screen, the curtains they are still closed. Do exit music. Well, the curtains are closed when you walk in the cinema, yeah. and they're playing the music from the film. It's. Yeah. I think it's becoming less and less about that experience. Like Cremorne Orpheum in Sydney sticks. Uh, sticks my in God, my brain. I was about to say the same they, thing. They, they still have an organist that comes in yeah. and plays the organ and has like a little uh, music because it's a beautiful theatre. Beautiful theatre. I, I saw, and it's a shame because I hated the film. It's mm. where I saw Moulin Rouge. <laughs> okay. And I mean, good it, setting yeah, for oh, it's it. It's a beautiful setting. It's but always... I couldn't wait for that movie to end. <laughs> Get me out of here. Let me leave. Yeah. Uh, I, I personally, do you know what? I, I actually, <clears throat> I'm going to come out right now. <laughs> I loved Moulin Rouge, but it's a time and place thing. Mm -hmm. And I was just in the right headspace to see it. I was living in London. I was sort of out, you know, out on my own, a single man. I was with friends and we had a few drinks and went to the movies and I just got caught up in it. I do think Baz Luhrmann walks a line that he can flip off uh, into sort of a self-parody almost, or he kind of nails it, which is what I think he did in Romeo and Juliet. See, that and, I uh, loved. I thought that was amazing. Yeah. And I think he's much underrated, but... Um, uh, just in terms of being an Australian filmmaker, Moulin Rouge is kind of insane and it's like he gives vent to his most crazy, intuitive, creative ideas. He just sort of goes with it and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And with that sort of filmmaking style, it's, he's taking risks. It's either going to come together or it won't. And for me, it came together. Romeo and Juliet, I loved. I actually really quite enjoyed Great Gatsby, but I kind of enjoyed most of his films. I, I think maybe I just, I, I like his I, I rushed theatrical. to see Strictly Ballroom. I remember seeing it in yeah, the cinema. I think I may have fun. gone one or once or twice. He's got such a heightened theatrical style. That's what I really enjoy about it. Demo, I think I will definitely do this again, but we should probably get an egg timer and sit it on the bench okay. and just uh, let it go off when it goes off. Dear listeners, we will catch up again very soon. I've enjoyed this very much. Me too. See you next time. Bye-bye.